Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. First Corinthians chapter 1. Join with me as I go to God in prayer. Oh God, there could only be a bright tomorrow, and we could only say that all is well. We could only sing songs like, it is well with my soul because of you, because of who you are, because as our text says this morning, God is faithful. You have been faithful through your son, Jesus Christ, and you will continue to be faithful to the very end through him, to the day, to his day, the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, in the meantime, we gather to worship you, we gather to declare the greatness of your name, and we seek to be changed through the transforming power of your word. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do that work. God, I pray that this people would not hear a preacher this morning, but they would hear from you. Lord, we praise you that you are a God who speaks. We ask that you would help us to listen well, that we might be changed and that we might go forth from this uh, place to be disciples who make disciples to your glory to the very ends of the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to imagine for a moment that you have been asked by some Christian leaders to be part of a committee that's been tasked with writing a letter to a church, to a really troubled church, a really messed up church, a church with with multiple issues. Uh, Their big issue is the issue of pride. Uh, They tend to think of themselves far too highly than they ought. And this results in uh, those who think much of themselves looking down on people whom they think are lesser. And it results in people uh, within the congregation who, who seem to be particularly gifted in certain kind of upfront ways to really be made much of by the rest of the congregation. And as a result of that, we have, there are divisions in this church and cliques and people uh, centering their attention on certain leaders and uh, saying, I'm with this group or I'm with that group or I'm all about this ministry or that home group. And to make things worse, there are just... There's really serious sin issues in the church. There are people from the congregation taking one another to court. There's sexual immorality in the church. And there's one case that is, that is so offensive that the world would be embarrassed by it. And then there are their worship services, their gatherings. They're downright chaotic. There's no order. People trying to talk on top of one another and and, and people speaking in tongues without anyone to interpret it. And when they have the Lord's Supper, there are those who are getting drunk on one hand and there are those who are getting nothing on the other. And amidst all this is some pretty serious doctrinal error and misunderstanding about some basic Christian truths of the Christian faith. And you have been tasked with writing a communication to help correct this bunch. Do you feel that burden? 
If you feel it, even a little bit, then you're walking in the Apostle Paul's shoes as he begins to pen the letter that we call 1 Corinthians. Because the Corinthian church was a crazy, messed up church. How should he start the letter? How would you start a letter to a church like that? Listen to how Paul begins writing to that crazy, messed up church with all the issues that I just mentioned. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you. Why was the Apostle Paul so grateful for this church that he would say, I give thanks always, in other words, on every occasion, whenever I have a chance, when every time I think about you guys, my first reaction is to thank God for you. Possibly the two most offensive words in our passage this morning are the words, for you. That Paul would be so grateful to God, so thankful to God for this congregation. What caused him? What caused him to thank God continually for them? They were a mess. Well, friends, that is the question that we're going to seek to answer this morning from our text, from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. And I think it's an important question for us to answer. Because we might not be quite as messed up as the Corinthian church. But every church has its mess. And if it didn't before you and I arrived... (laughs) It certainly did after we got here. And so let's seek to answer that question this morning. What caused the Apostle Paul to be so grateful? Because that can help us to be grateful for one another within the body of Christ. So let's look at 1 Corinthians. I'll read the text. Chapter 1, 4 through 9. We looked at three verses last week. Really just kind of one. Going to go for six this week. We're living, living large here. After the Apostle Paul makes it clear in verse 1 whom he is, apostle by the will of God, he identifies in verse 2 the church to whom he's writing. It's the church at Corinth that he, he describes in these exalted terms. They are sanctified in Christ. They are called. They are those who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus. We, we looked at that last week and said that describes who we are. That is our identity. And he gives them that greeting that he does at the beginning of his letters, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he writes this, verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because the grace of God was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Friends, this is God's holy word, and we thank him for it. Why was the Apostle Paul so grateful for this church? 
this messed up church? What, what caused him to say he continually thanked God for them? Well, it's right there in, verse, in the first verse, in verse 4. I thank my God for you because of the grace of God. Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Paul's gratitude for them is a result of his attentiveness to the grace of God in these believers. You see, he had observed God's grace. And because, because of this, he had a different point of view. Paul's point of view, his, his perspective, the lens through which he looked, as we're going to notice in this text, was, was God-centered, it was Christ-focused, and as a result, it was grace-based. These, this is the, how Paul looked at this church. Note, from, first of all, that it was his, his lens or his viewpoint was God-centered. Everything he says about them, everything in this text, is not about what they've done. It's all about what God has done in them and through him. God is the subject of nearly every action. Look again at the text. I give thanks to my God because of the gra his grace in you, that he has given you, God has given you grace. You were enriched. He is the one who enriched you. The testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. God confirmed that. You are not lacking any gift. Why? Because God is giving you gifts. It is God who will sustain you guiltless to the end. And then finally, it is God who is faithful. And so Paul's lens that he's looking through as he looks at this congregation is completely God-centered. But because it's God-centered, it's also Christ-focused. Notice again that everything that God has done in and for them, that God has done for them is in and through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace that he had given them, verse 4, for you in Christ Jesus. You were enriched in him even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed, as you wait eagerly for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you guiltless to the end, to the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says it again. God is faithful who called you into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so because his focus is God-centered, it is Christ-focused, it is naturally grace-based. He Paul focuses all his comments about this messed up church on the grace of God. He has enriched them. He has given them grace. The testimony about Jesus, which is the gospel of grace, was confirmed in them. God will sustain them guiltless to the end because of his grace. And so Paul's understanding, the way he looks at this congregation, is all based on the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And let's make sure we understand what the grace of God is, what his grace through Jesus is. It's a Bible word we throw around a lot. It's a, it's a beautiful word. It's a, more than that, it's a beautiful reality. This is God's favor. This is God's posture toward his people. Grace is God's undeserved kindness lavished on us through Jesus Christ. And I know there is there's a common sort of grace that God has for all people, that he, that he cares about all people. And as the rain fell this morning, we were reminded that God sends the rain and the sunshine for all people. We're focusing on God's saving grace, his particular grace for his people this morning. It is his undeserved kindness. And I, I use this word 
lavished. And I almost didn't use it because it's sort of a, of a kind of an old word, but I think it's a beautiful word. Uh, kids, if you don't understand what lavished is, let me explain it this way. How many of you like to get an ice cream cone from McDonald's or somewhere else? Anybody? Yeah, you, okay. Adults, you can raise your hand too. Okay, here's what, here's what happens when we go through the drive-thru at McDonald's to get ice cream cones. After we order them, there is this, this period of, of, of anxiety and anxious waiting until we get them. And you know what the big question is going to be in our minds about those ice cream cones? Will they be stingy with the ice cream? You know, just like a little dollop in the middle that doesn't hardly even go to the edge of the ice cream cone? Or will they be generous? Will they be lavish with the ice cream? And if they were truly lavish, this would be my picture of the ice cream cone coming out of the drive-thru window at McDonald's. It would just be, it would be up to there so that it's teetering and tottering and, and the ice cream would just be melting and flowing down your arm. And if it fell off, they'd say, no problem, just give us that cone and we'll fill it up again. That's lavishness. That's generosity. And that is God's posture toward his people through Jesus Christ. He is pouring out his kindness. He is pouring out his goodness that we deserve in no way. The only thing we bring to our salvation, brothers and sisters, is the sin that made it necessary for Christ to die for us. That's our only contribution. Everything is of grace that we would be enfolded into the body of Christ through faith. God is lavish with his kindness, lavish with his goodness toward his people. And the story of God's lavishness, of his grace applied to people in need of that grace is the gospel. That's why the gospel, 100% gospel is on the screen up there this morning. Because the story of God's grace lavished on people, that is the gospel story. And God's people are defined as being those who are recipients of that grace. That's what we looked at last week. That our identity is a result of God's saving activity in Christ. That's who we are. And that's who every believer in every church, no matter how messed up that church might be, that is our identity in Christ. And in this passage, we see that Paul highlights how God's grace through Jesus Christ is being worked out in real time. The gospel is having its effects in real time. Let's just look at that as we go through this passage again. That is why Paul is grateful for them. Paul has seen in this particular body the grace of God worked out in real time. They, they, are, they are evidence. They are trophies of God's grace. They are trophies, first of all, of God's past grace worked out in real time. Paul begins his, his cataloging of these gospel gifts in this passage with the gift from which all the other gifts of God's grace flow, his saving grace. This amazing grace only by which a person can say, I once was lost and now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. This, friends, is the miracle of salvation. And Paul is saying, yes, Corinthian church, you have experienced it. And Paul can say, hey, I was there. I was there when it happened. Later in the book of Corinthians in chapter 6, as Paul does get into the more of the corrective mode, Paul lists a, a catalog of sins and says people who continue to practice these things 
will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he says things like sexual immorality, idolatry, adulterers, uh, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, and, here's the beautiful part, such, he says, were some of you. This is who you were before Christ. This is who you were before you heard the gospel message and repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ. But, but now you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Paul saw it happen. He saw God's saving grace worked out in real time among this people as he preached the gospel to them and taught them for 18 months in the city of Corinth. And Paul goes on to say in verse 6 that, that the reality of God's saving grace is evidenced among the Corinthians, he says, because the testimony about Christ, which is the gospel, that the gospel message that Paul himself preached was, he says, confirmed. He uses that word confirmed among them in verse 6. And that, that word confirmed is an interesting word in the original. It's actually a legal term that has to do with guaranteeing a contract. And so in other words, what Paul is saying is that, that Jesus made good on his covenant promises to you. That Jesus fully executed the, his contractual obligations to the Father to be our Savior, even as he was executed on the cross of Calvary, laying down his life, the necessary legal payment for our sin, made in full, sufficient for the sins of the world, and then God raising him from the dead to say, yes, Jesus, I accept your payment in full for the sins of all who look to you in faith. And so the evidence of God's saving grace is in their lives. And it's present, Paul goes on to say, in all kinds of spiritual gifts that God has given them. In particular, he says there's two gifts, gifts of speaking and gifts of knowing. These are what we sometimes call spiritual gifts. And what a trip it must have been to be among the Corinthian church. Because they had an unusual number of people, it seems, in their congregation who were gifted to speak God's word in various forms. And they also had many people who were gifted to understand the things of God. They had knowledge in a very impactful and penetrating way. Gifts of, gifts of speaking, gifts of knowing. And Paul says, you've got all kinds of gifts. There's, there are no gifts lacking. Now, sadly, the Corinthian church, the, the Corinthian people there, were, were guilty of becoming so enamored with these gifts, especially the ones that they put and understood as higher order gifts, that they made it a point of pride. And that they missed the giver of the gifts for the gifts being manifest in their church. And yet, in spite of that, Paul still gives thanks for them before he begins to correct them. Well, we also see the gospel in real time in the Corinthians through God's present grace. Paul also thanks God for the present grace among the Corinthians. We've already noted in verse 7 that Paul 
points to the completeness of their gift. It says they're not lacking any gifts. Literally, there is no shortfall of gifts among you. Both as evidence of God's saving grace, these gifts are, and as the present reality that they enjoy. And then Paul connects this, this gifting to the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you notice all this return of Jesus, day of the Lord terminology in this passage? What exactly is he saying there? What exactly is the, the connection between the, the present gifting of God's people and Jesus' future return? Well, I think it has to do with that word waiting. When Paul says that, that you've been gifted as you wait for our, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think we have to understand what waiting means biblically, especially within the New Testament. Um, because it's not the same way we necessarily use the term waiting. When we think of waiting, we think of sitting in a waiting room somewhere, paging through magazines that we really have no interest in. That's what we understand waiting to be. But biblically waiting, especially in terms of waiting for Christ's return, is not that kind of inactive waiting. It's more like the waiting of an Olympic athlete for that Olympic year to come around. It has nothing for that athlete, it has nothing to do with inactivity. She is training, she is competing, she is strategizing, anything but being inactive. And we, as Christ's body have been gifted by the Spirit in order to wait. I know that kind of sounds like, gosh, sounds like opening the presents on Christmas morning and then sitting on the couch and, and staring at them. Well, the gifts of the Spirit are not to be used that way. They are to, to be used. They are to be employed. The waiting that God calls us to is an active service using the gifts of the Spirit to carry out various and our diverse roles among God's people, to, to make Christ known to the nations and to our neighbors, to declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, to, to demonstrate the values of God's kingdom by, by doing justice and, and loving mercy, to make use of the gifts that we've been given, to show the superiority and praiseworthiness of Christ's kingdom. Now, finally, the gospel is worked out in real time in terms of, of future grace. We see the apostle giving thanks to God for the grace that his brothers and sisters are yet to experience. Future grace. It is here that gratitude begins to turn the corner and be joined with confident hope. Paul expressed his confidence not only that God had confirmed, past tense, these believers in Christ, but also that he will sustain, that he will confirm them, or that he will sustain them. It's the same word that, that I read as sustain and confirm. It's the same word. God will confirm them so that on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, on judgment day, they will hear the verdict, not guilty. They will hear the verdict, guiltless, blameless. What a wonderful thing. That is, that is the joy, that is the privilege of God's grace for every believer. And it's, it's not just for the day of the Lord. I don't think Paul is, is only saying, yes, 
God will sustain you so that one day he will consider you blameless. Now, if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, his work on your behalf, his righteousness, friends, then God is looking at you the way he looks at his son. He sees you as blameless right now. And he will sustain you to the end so that that will be the final verdict as well. That's why Paul can write later to the church at Rome, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us? And what is the basis of Paul's confident hope in our text this morning. It's in verse 9, the shortest little sentence. God is faithful. In the original, the word faithful is first. So you can read it, faithful is God. That's probably how Yoda would say it, right? Faithful is God. God is faithful. It's true either way that you say it. And why? Because Paul says, you know this, you know it's the truth because you were called into fellowship with the Son. It's interesting that here Paul uses the title Son and reminds us of Jesus' sonship, that he is the unique Son of God. You know that God will be faithful to the end because he has called you into fellowship with Jesus, who is his Son. And how faithful is the Father to the Son. And if you, by faith, have been united with his Son, he will be faithful to you as well. You know it. You can take it to the bank. And so in spite of all their shortcomings, Paul looks at this church and he says, I've seen God's grace clearly evident in you. And for that, he gives thanks to God. And so we, we could summarize it this way. Here is the principle, the big principle to draw out this morning. God's undeserved kindness through Jesus, his grace, that's the gospel story. God's undeserved kindness through Jesus is the basis for our gratitude for one another in the body of Christ, as well as our confidence in God for his faithfulness. God's undeserved favor, his kindness through Jesus. It is what undergirds our gratitude. It is what causes our gratitude, as well as our confidence that God will be faithful to his people to the end. Now let's talk about two implications of that truth. Two implications of that reality. What should our response to this truth be? I think you can imagine based on that summary what it would be. First of all, it is that God is calling us to be grateful for the evidences of his grace in one another. God is calling us, God, God is calling his people to, to be grateful, to be thankful for the evidences the instances of his grace that we see in one another and that we know, based on this passage, are truly there. Because if this passage is true, and I believe it is, 
There are reasons to give thanks for every disciple of Jesus who is here this morning, every disciple of Jesus who is part of this church. The brother or sister who annoys you the most, don't look at anyone right now, eyes all straight ahead, the person who is part of this church that you are tempted to think is least important, you would never say that out loud because we're all good Midwesterners and we, we pack it down in there. But if you were honest with, your, with yourself and said, well, there's a couple people that, you know, I could take them or leave them. I don't think it's all that mission critical that they're, they're part of our fellowship. If this passage is true, then there is ample, overflowing reason to thank God and be grateful for that person, as well as the person that you already appreciate the most here. Yet is that how we tend to look at one another? Or, or are we tending to, to look for reasons to be critical of one another? Or are we looking for evidences of God's grace in one another? Are we quick to affirm those evidences of God's grace? That's what God is calling us to this morning. For everyone who is truly a believer, there is, there is ample reason, overflowing reason to give God thanks. And friends, that is completely countercultural. I want to ask you, when you go to work tomorrow, in your workplace, is that the way people tend to think about one another? Do they, are they tending to look for reasons to be grateful for other people? Or does the average person tend to look for reasons to be critical of other people? And here we are as the body of Christ, as God's redeemed people, all trophies of God's grace, none of us deserving to be in. And shouldn't we be grateful to God for the instances that we see, where we see God's grace active in another person's life? Even, even if that flame just, it seems kind of dim, but it's there. We know We've seen God at work in that person. We've, we've heard their testimony of his saving grace. C.S. Lewis once said that if you saw a brother or sister in Christ, say a hundred years from now, when they are glorified before the throne, if you saw them in that state, you would be tempted to worship them. The glory would be so great. Friends, that is the destiny of every one of God's people, to share in Christ's glory. And we know that Christ is glorious beyond imagination. So if we're just sharing in the tiniest sliver of that as his people, it is great reason for thanksgiving. It is great reason for worship. Secondly, we ought to respond to God as he's calling us to have confidence in his faithfulness toward one another. God is calling us to have confidence in his faithfulness toward one another, that he will, he will keep us to the end. He will keep your brother and your sister in Christ to the end. On what do we tend to base our confidence or lack thereof in one another? 
within the body of Christ? What, what do we tend to, to base our confidence in one another on within our church? Husbands and wives, what do we base our confidence in one another? Parents, children. I think it tends to be our default is, is in the performance that we see in other people. Rather than entrusting God's work in them, do you tend to be optimistic or pessimistic about the work that God is doing in your spouse, in your friend, in your fellow home group member, in your child? I once heard a pastor tell the story about his wedding day. And I was really tuned into this story because it matched the story of my wedding day in the sense that both of us were being married by our future father-in-law. Our future father-in-law was going to perform the wedding, marrying his daughter. And so I was tuned in as this guy was telling the story about his wedding day. And he related about that, that anxious moment when often the pastor is sort of backstage or, or behind a door with the groom, just the two of them, before they come out into the sanctuary or wherever the wedding is, is happening. And as a pastor, I've experienced that a few times. It's, it's an anxious moment. You kind of don't know what to say to one another. And this guy felt like he wanted to say something to his future father-in-law, and he wanted to, you know, kind of endear himself. And so he said to his future father-in-law, Sir, I am, I am just so thankful that you trust me with your daughter. And the man turned and looked at his future son-in-law and said, I don't trust you. <laughs> this godly man said, I don't trust you, but I trust Jesus Christ. And I know you love him. I know my daughter loves him. I know your marriage is going to be on the foundation of him. And so I trust God. And for that reason, I'm glad to marry the two of you this morning. Friends, do we trust God for one another? That he will, he will carry us through to the end. That even when we don't see all of all of those evidences of grace in one another that we'd like to see. That we are confident that God will keep one another to the end. How can we do this? <laughs> How can we do this? I'm afraid the simple answer this morning, I'm not afraid the simple answer this morning, I, I know the simple answer this morning is we can't. It is, it's not our natural tendency, I don't think, and maybe I'm just speaking for myself here, it's not our natural tendency to thank God for people, particularly people who have some issues in our minds. People whose faults seem to precede them. It's not natural for us, but it is supernatural. It is a work that God wants to do, and so we can't do this unless God does something to us first. And you know what that is? He needs to overwhelm us with the reality of the grace that he has given to each one of us. 
We need to be able to sing and say from our hearts that, that once again, we look upon the cross where Jesus died for me. And as I do, I'm humbled by his mercy. I see there's no reason for me to have anything but, but optimism for my brother and sister who is in Christ. I'm broken inside. And I thank God. I thank God for the cross. I thank God for, for what he has done for me. And so my obedience to anything he's called me to do, in, including looking for his grace in others and trusting him confidently for others, all of my obedience is by God's grace alone as his child. And so it's only through our embracing of and our re-embracing of gospel truth that we can carry this out. And we can if we know that Christ has died for me. He has, he has set me free. I'm confident I'm secure in him. And so we can adjust our summary of this passage this morning. God's undeserved kindness lavished on us, lavished on me, lavished on you through Jesus. It produces gratitude for one another. It produces confidence. As I consider all that Jesus is, as I consider all that he has done for me in laying down his life, and rising victoriously. That is the fuel for the gratitude, for the lens of gratitude through which I see my brother and sister in Christ. That is the fuel for my confidence. I know that God was faithful to his son, and I am in fellowship with his son. He will surely be faithful to me. He will surely be faithful to all his people. Dear ones, what will cause your home to be a grace-filled place where family members are more aware of God's work in one another than they are in one another's shortcomings? What will cause our marriages to be characterized by spouses who think the best of one another and find great joy in affirming one another? Friends, what will cause this church fellowship to have, have the sweet aroma of Christ to be a place where, where every person feels safe to pursue Jesus openly despite and in spite of their own brokenness, which is going to show. Dear ones, your personal awareness and my personal awareness of God's grace for us in Christ will do that. Our embracing of the gospel, our confident hope that God will finish the work that he has started. will do that work amongst us. God has called us into fellowship with his son. He is faithful to his son. He will be faithful to us to the end. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise this morning for the trophies of your grace gathered in this room. For every person who has trusted Christ for salvation, who has repented of their sin and placed their faith in him. We thank you. And God, I pray for anyone who does not know that reality, that they would look to Jesus in faith today. 
And God, we confess that we don't often see one another that way as, as trophies of your grace, as evidence of what you are doing for your glory. We pray you'd forgive us. And God, we thank you for your word this morning, the gospel truth which transforms us so that we can begin to see our brother and sister through the light of the lens of your grace in Jesus. And Lord, we pray that you would give us more grace to see one another in that way, to love one another in that way. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible.org.